0: I don't like to be ungracious, but I like to correct introductions that use words like renowned by pointing out that uh, uh, our Lord chooses very strange instruments to do his work. Uh, when he entered Jerusalem to do the most important work that anyone has ever done in the history of the world, he wrote a jackass, he still does. I shall try to be short uh, so that we can leave some time for Q&A. Microphones can be passed around, which is always more interesting because it's closer to the nature of ultimate reality, which is three persons in eternal dialogue. Well, at least two persons is better than just one, which is why dialogue is always more interesting than monologue. What are the seven reasons why everyone should be a Catholic? Well, to be very simple, it's true, it's good, it's beautiful, uh, the facts of history prove it, uh, it produces saints, it gets you to heaven, and this is where you meet Jesus Christ. Let's start with the first three. Truth, goodness, and beauty are the three things that everybody wants. They're the three foods that every human soul is designed to hunger for uh, infinitely. We're satisfied with other things. We're not satisfied with any amount of truth. Would you like to know the truth on Monday, but not on Tuesday? We're not satisfied with any amount of goodness. We want it to just keep pouring out. The only place that it does that from is the infinite source that is God. And we're not satisfied with only a little beauty. Uh, beauty wets our appetite for more and more and more. And the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, which are the spiritual glue that sticks us to God, uh, are the church's answer to those three innate human desires. How do we know the truth by faith? By accepting the word of truth himself. Uh, how do we uh, know the good by love by charity that's the essence of good and you attain it only by doing it Uh, how do we attain beauty what is the most beautiful thing in the world our hope of infinite beauty in heaven Isn't it interesting that whenever we have a long story, an epic, a great novel or a movie or a great myth, there's always three characters, three protagonists, three heroes, uh, and one of them is always a leader, a king, or a captain, one of them is always an intellectual, a scientist or a philosopher, and one of them does the, the humble spade work, like a priest, Uh, prophet, priest, and king, the three offices that God himself appointed in his chosen people and in our souls. Uh, For instance, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the three main characters, all of whom are Christ figures because all of whom die and resurrect in different ways, uh, are Gandalf, who's a prophet, and Aragorn, who's a king, and Frodo, who's a priest. In The Brothers Karamazov, the greatest novel ever written, uh, we have Ivan Karamazov, who is the philosopher, uh, a prophet. He's a false prophet, he's an atheist, but he's an honest one. Uh, And uh, Dmitri, who is, like his father, uh, strong-willed. He's a bad king, but he's a king. Uh, And Alyosha, who is a confused priest, but he's a priest. Uh, In the most philosophical science fiction uh, series uh, TV ever had, Star Trek, we have Captain Kirk, who's the captain, and uh, Mr. Spock, who's the science officer, and Bones McCoy, who's the humble country doctor. Even in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John, uh, Jesus' hand-picked inner circle of three correspond to that. John, as we know from his books in the New Testament, is the great prophet, the intellectual, uh, the mind. Uh, and Peter is the rock, the ruler, the king, and James is a practical moralist. He's probably not the same James who wrote the epistle, uh, but the epistle is certainly very, very practical. Uh, the reason this is so, this is Everywhere you, you find this in in even simple movies like like Jaws here you have uh, Captain Quint who's the captain of the orca and you have uh, Hooper who's the visiting scientist and you have Brody who's the uh, the local bumbling sheriff? Uh, the reason this is so is that they reflect us they reflect the human soul and God who designed the human soul and designed it to run on the fuel that is nothing but himself which is why no other fuel works, which is why our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Uh, God wants to pour himself into all three of these powers of the soul. And he pours himself into our mind by faith and into our will by charity and into our, 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 well, the third power is rather more difficult to define, the mysterious heart. Uh, or spiritual emotions, uh, it does that by hope. Faith is our relation to truth, and goodness is the fruit of faith, and joy is the fruit of the spiritual intercourse between faith and hope, between truth and goodness, between the intellect and the will. And the two greatest beauties in the world are truth and goodness, uh they're beyond the world the the supreme beauty is the beatific vision of God, the contemplation of eternal truth and the supreme goodness is in, in this world the most the most beautiful thing we've ever seen is the goodness of a saint uh, Nothing that we've ever seen with our eyes can compare with the most beautiful thing that human eyes have ever seen 2,000 years ago on Calvary. This is why the most bloody and ugly movie ever made is also the greatest and the most beautiful, The Passion of the Christ. Well, let's take these one by one. Truth. Why must that come first? Because that's the absolutely absolute absolute. Even goodness and beauty have to be true goodness and true beauty. Suppose you could get those other two things, namely goodness and beauty and its fruit, joy, happiness, suppose you could get them without truth. And then suppose that you had to give up some goodness and some beauty, at least temporarily, to get the truth. Which would you choose? Suppose somebody invented a machine. It's called a happiness machine. And when you walked into that machine, you would be completely happy. Uh, And there would be no sin and no guilt and no punishment and no pain and no suffering and no fear. Uh, You would have everything except truth. It would be a dream, it would be an illusion. But the illusion would be perfect. And once you walked into that machine, you would never want to walk out. Would you walk into that machine? I hope not. We're trying to find one every day. That's the whole problem with the world. doesn't believe in truth. If you think that's too harsh, uh, I th- want to refute you. I think you are honest enough and tough-minded enough to put truth first. I think you all deep down agree that the only honest reason anybody should ever believe anything is because it's true. Uh and I'll prove that to you. Do you believe in Santa Claus <coughs> literally? I mean the 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 fat jolly man in the red flannel suit who comes down your chimney and and gives you Christmas presents. Of course not. But when you were about 2 years old, you did, right? At that point, you didn't know the difference between myth and fact. And your parents probably told you the myth, the story, which is a a nice story because it's, its point is that that generosity is fun, giving is fun. That's a profound truth. But of course, Santa Claus isn't literally true. So I hope that by the time you got old enough to make that distinction and ask your parents, is Santa Claus true, they said something like, Well, not the way you think it, but there was a real Saint Nicholas and he really was generous and so on. Okay, fine. But when you believed in the mythic Santa Claus at two years old, how happy you were and how well you behaved, at least the day before Christmas. Now, how come you gave up belief in Santa Claus? Why don't you just go back to that belief If you literally believed in Santa Claus, you'd be very happy and you'd be very good. Or to take an even more ridiculous example, why don't you believe that this room is heaven and that I'm God? If you believed that and you see me, you'd be in the beatific vision. Well, because that's really, really, really stupid. It isn't true. Oh, who cares about truth? It would make you good and it would make you happy. Ah, yes, I guess truth is an absolute. It's not the only thing. It's the root of the plant. It's not yet the fruit. Charity and joy and those other things are the fruit. But without the root, you don't get the fruit. So we've got to start by being infinitely tough-minded. Truth is an absolute. No compromise with truth. Cardinal Newman once said, uh, if I could get to heaven by telling one little lie, I wouldn't do it. Because a heaven that's based on a lie is really hell. All right, the honest motive then for being a Catholic, and the only reason why everyone should be a Catholic, is that it's true. Because everyone needs truth. But truth has fruits. And one of the fruits is Goodness. and the essence of goodness is charity. And just as truth is the only honest reason for believing the Catholic faith, so charity is the only irrefutable reason for being a Catholic. A saint is what we're destined to be. It's the meaning of life. If if you don't attain that, you are a failure. Even if you get A's in all your other courses, Uh, If you're not a saint, you've flunked life. The two always go together, faith and charity, faith and the works of faith, Uh, which are the works of love. The greatest tragedy in, uh, in the history of the visible church is certainly the Protestant Reformation, which split it far more radically than the split between East and West did in 1054, because the Eastern Church preserved all the dogmas and sacraments intact and hasn't further split, whereas Protestantism gave rise to a number of very different uh, schisms and heresies and has split into somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 different denominations. Now, if you ask any biblical Protestant, any Protestant who hasn't abandoned the faith altogether, and I think most of them haven't, uh, if you ask them what was the most important issue that justified Luther in splitting the church at the Protestant Reformation, they would say, well, Catholics didn't know how to get to heaven. They believed that uh, you had to do good works to get to heaven. And Luther rediscovered what the Bible teaches, namely justification by faith, Well, as long as you don't add the word faith alone, in a sense, that's true. We know the Bible. We wrote it for goodness sakes. Uh, Actually, justification by faith alone is mentioned in the Bible. It's a heresy. It's explicitly denied by James. A man is not justified by faith alone. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Isn't there uh, an absolute contradiction between those two notions that Uh, the ticket to heaven is a one-part ticket, faith alone, and the idea that the the ticket to heaven is a two-part ticket, faith and good works. Uh, And the Catholic Church excommunicated Luther, and Luther declared the church to be in heresy, uh, and you can't compromise with truth, so you can't possibly negotiate that without compromise, right? Wrong, God performed a miracle. The Decree on Justification, which went through three stages in the 1990s, uh, in all three stages, including its final stage, was approved uh, by the Vatican, officially, and by the worldwide uh, conference of German, uh, not just German, worldwide, uh, Lutheran bishops, and a lot of other Protestants hung on, too. Nobody thought that could happen 50 years ago. That's the greatest ecumenical achievement in history. Without compromise, each side said, well, we both believe in the Bible, so we've got to somehow agree. How, how do we agree? Well, we're speaking different languages. When Luther said a man is justified by faith alone, he meant by justified, just getting to heaven. Uh, and if you don't have time for good works, like the thief on the cross, he can still get to heaven. Oh, uh, and what Luther meant by faith was not just intellectual faith, but what Catholics call faith, hope, and charity together, the very life of God in your soul. Catholics can buy that. And when Catholics say you're not justified by faith alone, but you need good works too, they mean by justification not just getting to heaven, but becoming a saint. And of course you need good works for that. And what they mean, what we Catholics mean by faith, is one of the three theological virtues, not all three. Faith is that act of the mind or the intellect prompted by the will, by which we believe everything God has revealed on the authority of the one who revealed it. So once we understood that we're both saying the same thing in different words, we said, oh, now, there are all sorts of other issues that have not been negotiated without compromise. For instance, the authority of the church and the relation between the church and the Bible and the sacraments uh, and many other things. And nobody today can see how God can possibly bring order out of that chaos. But nobody could see 50 years ago how he did it with the the biggie. So if Goliath has fallen, the other Philistines can be slain too. Because we didn't do it, God did it. Wow. There can't be a contradiction between faith and love, faith and good works, faith and goodness. Those are two of the fundamental demands of the human heart. And we don't have two hearts, we have one heart. The faith that is indifferent to charity and the charity that is indifferent to faith is not true faith or true charity. So somehow that's doable. So I'm a great optimist for the future, as was St. John Paul II. He said, the first millennium was the millennium of Christian unity, and the second millennium was the millennium of Christian disunity, and the third millennium must be the millennium of Christian reunity, because we've got to approach the world unified in the truth. You can argue with the most brilliant theologian who ever lived. Not everybody is a Thomist. Thomas Aquinas was certainly the most brilliant mind that ever lived. But nobody ever could argue with Mother Teresa. Impossible. I mean, even, even pro-choice people, when they hear her say, what, you're justifying abortion because there's too many children? That's like saying there's too many flowers. How do you deal with an argument like that? One of the most brilliant intellectuals of the 20th century, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was an atheist for most of his life. Uh, He was the editor of Punch, one of the funniest humor magazines in the world. He was very British. Uh, He made friends with Mother Teresa. He made her famous. There was a miracle which convinced him that she was a saint. But he still wasn't a Catholic. He was only an Anglican. One day he was walking around Mother Teresa's hospital uh, talking, uh, and Mother said, Malcolm, you're a good man. Why don't you see your way all the way through to, to swim the Tiber? And Malcolm said, this is in his autobiography, I replied, well, Mother, I'll uh, answer you in your own words. I guess God uh, uh, sees me here uh, doing some good work, like making you famous. And he says, well, Malcolm's a good man, and I need some good men outside the Catholic Church as well as inside. And then Mother Teresa made me a Catholic by three words. No, he doesn't. (laughs) And I couldn't answer that. (laughs) That's the wisdom of a saint. You cannot argue with a saint. Nobody ever won an argument with Mother Teresa. Nobody. So you want to convince the world? There's only one way. Be a saint because if not, you're a failure. The 19th century French Catholic writer, Léon Blois, uh, snuck into most of his plays and novels a line that he loved to repeat. In the end, life offers only one tragedy, not to have been a saint. The highest authority in the world demands nothing less. In the Sermon on the Mount, most popular sermon ever preached. I don't know why it's so popular, because if you take it seriously and then you look at yourself, uh, the gap between what Jesus himself demands and what you are is immense. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, I don't know how pro- most Protestants deal with that, but uh, we believe in purgatory. We're going to need a lot of extra baking. But the end is a cake that is absolutely perfect. If you saw with your eyes right now the person you are destined to be in heaven, you would probably commit idolatry. You'd probably fall down and worship it and say it's a God. That's why God doesn't let you see that. And God is not going to satisfy himself with anything less. He is a perfectionist. He's infinitely compassionate and infinitely merciful and offers forgiveness to the worst sinner for all the sins of his life and the worst sins, and yet at the same time, he demands perfection. He's like a good father. He is both stern and kind. He's both tough and tender. Now, these two things together, truth and goodness, produce beauty the greatest beauty, and that is our supreme joy. And we're destined for nothing but joy, nothing less than joy, not just pleasure. We can get that, we can control that, at least on a on a physical level, and part time. Uh, and even happiness, which is more spiritual and inward, uh, that's not our destiny, merely. Happiness also comes and goes and it's subjective, it's a, it, it's a feeling, it's the satisfaction of our desires, whatever they are, and they're not necessarily wise. And besides, happiness gets boring, which is why we need to, to act up once in a while, which is the reason why little boys love to uh, to use bulldozers. Here, little girls make dollhouses and that's fine, and little boys smile and and bulldoze down the dollhouses. That's not just wickedness. <laughs> That's surprise. We love to be surprised. Happiness doesn't surprise us because happiness is the satisfaction of the desires we already have. But God wants to satisfy desires we don't even know we have. Surprise, that's joy. Heaven never gets boring. When I was a teenager, I had a crisis of faith. I have ADD and therefore I get bored very easily. And I was afraid I'd get bored in heaven because I thought it was the internal church service. I usually got bored in church. (laughs) The only thing that saved me was that verse in the book of Revelation where it says, I saw no temple in heaven because God himself is there. So I said to myself, "Okay, I guess God's not boring. One of the most impressive things about Christ in the Gospels is that he never bored anybody. I think he's the only human being in history who never bored anybody. He's always surprising you. He never says or does or even is exactly what we expect. And I think that's going to go on in heaven forever and ever. That's why we're never going to be born in heaven. There's some aspect of God that you discover anew every single day forever. And then once you discover it, you tell everybody else about it. By heavenly means that we have no idea what they are. All earthly philosophy and theology and art and science is simply a a pale copy of those means. We're destined for nothing but that. And if that's not so, then something better is. The Bible defines heaven this way. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. All right. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Now let's get concrete. What truths? Well, the fundamental truth that made me a Catholic was the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus Christ established the Catholic Church. To be a Christian is to accept Christ as your Lord. And if Christ said, Here's the church I designed for you, you take it. You don't say, Well, I want to edit your mail just a little bit, instead of faithfully carrying it. You don't do that. If you believe that Christ is God incarnate, and if not, you're not a Christian. That's the the bright line in the sand that distinguishes all Christians from all non-Christians. The first and earliest Christian creed is in the New Testament, in two places in Paul's letters. It consists in three words, Christ is Kyrios, Lord. The Greek word for Lord is a word that no Christian ever uses for Caesar or any other human being. All right, the divinity of Christ is the definitive Christian doctrine. If you don't believe that, you're an apostate, not a Christian. If you do believe that, you're a Christian, however confused you may be about anything else. All right, so if Christ is divine and if Christ established one visible church and authorized it to teach in his name, and he did. The Bible itself says that. He said to his apostles, he who hears you hears me. And the apostles, the New Testament makes this clear, ordained successors to carry on that visible, authoritative teaching. And all Christians believe that for 1,500 years. Well, then how could I possibly be outside it? Here's Noah's Ark. And I, as a Protestant, uh, loved Jesus Christ and, and was probably going to get to heaven, but I was in this little lifeboat uh, following in the wake of Noah's Ark. And I was going to get to heaven only because Noah's Ark made that wake. Well, why didn't I jump aboard? Here are all the great saints inviting me. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of animals on the ark, and that means a lot of poop. Uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of poop in the church's history, sure. When I was at Calvin College, uh, some of my friends gave me some anti-Catholic literature to read, and, uh, one of them was a, a very funny book by a Renaissance, uh, short storyteller, uh, Boccaccio. It's called The Decameron and it was stories about clerical corruption. He was Italian and the Italians are close enough to the church that they they see a lot of the dirt that we don't. I mean, ride in any taxi in Rome and they'll tell you the latest scandal. Uh This was during the Borgia papacy. The Borgia family basically was like the mafia. They controlled the papacy. And uh, the pope uh, at the time was was I'm not sure if it's Alexander the 22nd or John the 22nd, one of these scandalous popes who had uh, a public mistress and about 13 bastard children and was filthy rich. But he never changed the doctrine. He never said, okay, popes can do this now. He was a hypocrite. He didn't practice what he preached. Thank God. That means he didn't preach what he practiced. Uh, anyway, during this time, there is a pious bishop of Paris who has a Jewish friend, Abraham, who's a intelligent businessman. And they have theological discussions. And the bishop thinks that uh, Abraham is on the verge of conversion. Uh, And one day Abraham comes to him and says, uh, wish me good speed, bishop. I'm on my way to Rome. I got to do business with the Vatican Bank and live with the papal family for a couple of months. I'll see you in the spring. And the bishop says, look, uh, why don't you uh, get baptized before you go down there? The air isn't very clear down there. And Abraham said, uh, look, I'm a practical Jewish businessman. One of my rules is first business, then pleasure. So I got to do my business there. If I come back uh, and I get baptized, that'll be my pleasure. Goodbye. The bishop said, I've lost him. He'll see what goes on down there. He'll never become a Catholic. Comes back in a couple of months. Oh, you went to Rome? Yep. You lived with the papal family? Yep. You did business with the Vatican Bank? Yep. Oh, I guess you're not interested in baptism. Oh, yes, I am. I'm convinced. What? You saw what goes on now uh, there, and now you're convinced? I don't get it. Abraham says, look, I don't know that much about theology, but I know a lot about business. I know for sure, no earthly business, that stupid or corrupt, could last 14 days. Yours has lasted 14 centuries. It's a miracle. (laughs) I thought that was a great argument, the facts of history. What other visible human institution has kept its teaching absolutely pure, even though the the teachers were far from absolutely pure? It's a miracle. It's a visible miracle. It's an in-your-face miracle. Facts of history. Okay. Had to be on board. The next thing that made me a Catholic was reading the saints. I'd never read Catholic saints before. As a teenager, I started, this was a mistake, but a providential mistake. I started with St. John of the Cross. I didn't understand anything except that this was real. This was true. This this was Everest. I had been dealing with anthills. This was a mountain. Wow, you can't argue with the saints. I think we should spend a lot more time and attention on the lives of the saints because they're a tremendous teaching device, especially with young people. Adolescents are growing into adulthood and they need models. And we, of course, as as their fathers are, are models, models of God, God designed that. Jesus' word for, for God is Father. But they need more than us, they they need balanced models. Every one of us has, has faults somewhere and they need to be corrected, but not by us, by somebody else. Well, there's the saints. There are an incredibly wide variety. Every conceivable uh, human psychological type with all sorts of, of, of weaknesses and problems and, and disorders. Uh, you can't argue with a saint. Show them the saints. Show them great movies like A Man for All Seasons, which is my favorite movie of all time. I classify the Passion of the Christ as more a liturgy than a movie. What would a saint in the modern, politically correct world look like? He'd look exactly like St. Thomas More. All right. I've gone through five reasons faith, hope, charity, facts of history, saints, hope of heaven. Be a Catholic because it's Noah's Ark and Noah's Ark is going to the land of life and you're in the land of death. Be a Catholic because that's the God-ordained way to get to heaven. That's what the church is for. It's an ark. It's going somewhere. It's his way of saving you from a flood and preserving you for a new world. And As I said before, heaven is something far better than we can dream. C.S. Lewis puts it in these memorable words. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have it, or else that it was within your grasp and you have lost it forever. What could be more important than that? Nothing. Why are we so bland, so passionless? There is something about which to have infinite passion, namely infinity. And if that's not true, it's the world's biggest illusion. It can't be just a nice ideal. It can't be just a myth. It can't just be a, a helpful dream. It's either true or it isn't. And this brings me to my seventh reason which is, I think, the most logical. Uh, Let's start with the existence of God. If God doesn't exist, then about 95% of all human beings who have ever lived in the history of the world in all times, places, cultures, and religions have guided their lives by the biggest illusion in the world. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember the old Jimmy Stewart movie, Harvey. Jimmy Stewart is a nice, reasonable, apparently rational, uh, middle-aged man uh, who has one very strange fixation. He believes in Harvey, who is a 13-foot-high invisible rabbit that only Jimmy Stewart can see. Nobody else can see him. And he's the most important person in Jimmy's life. Well, Jimmy is nice, and he's good and whatnot, but he's, he's insane. There is no Harvey. He's just a delayed adolescent who's playing with an invisible friend. Now, if God doesn't exist, then 95% of the human beings in the history of the world have been insane, as insane as Jimmy Stewart. At least one atheist explicitly admits that, Sigmund Freud. In his most philosophical book, uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, he labels religion insanity. Uh, Not many people will go that far, but Freud explains why. Well, the insane don't know that they're insane. They think people outside the insane asylum are insane. But if there's no God, then all believers in any kind of God, any kind of uh, superior superhuman being are insane. So you gotta be a snob to be an atheist. Oops, that's a short act of contrition. then you come to Jesus, who claims to be God incarnate. Now, that too is an either-or. That's either true or it's not true. If it's true, you have to worship him. And if it's not true, what do you have to do? Well, if you're a good Jew, you have to crucify him. Actually, only the Romans crucified. Uh, The Jews used stoning. But when Jesus, uh, in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel, explicitly said to them, I'm God, he didn't use those two words, but he said something even more shocking. Truly, truly, I say to you, which is the rabbinical formula for take this as seriously as possible. It's not a myth. Don't negotiate it. Don't, don't be subtle about it. Don't do a little dance around it. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was Yahweh. Those words had not been heard since God spoke them to Moses from the burning bush. That was God's own name, so holy that no Jew ever dared to pronounce it. Well, if he isn't who he says he is, he is the world's worst blasphemer and liar. And if anybody deserved to be killed, it was him. People read that passage and they say, well, I like Jews. You're supposed to. Jesus is a Jew. Therefore, I am not going to say nasty things about the Jews. So they, they just sort of misunderstood him. No, they didn't. They understood him perfectly clearly. And they were being very faithful to Mosaic law, which demanded execution for blasphemy. If Jesus is not Lord, then he's either a liar or a lunatic, one or the other. The one thing he can't possibly be is the thing that all non-Christians think he is, namely a good man. A man who claims to be God and demands your worship is not a good man. He's a bad man. He's either intellectually bad, insane, or he's morally bad, a wicked liar. The same kind of argument applies to the Catholic Church. Only the Catholic Church claims to be the one infallible, divinely authorized, visible institution on earth. No Protestant church claims that. So if that's not true, then of all the Christian churches, the Catholic Church is the most wicked and blasphemous and arrogant. But of course, if it is true, then everybody ought to join it. It's Noah's Ark. And then finally, what the church gives you is... Of course, truth and goodness, the saints, but also beauty, especially in the liturgy, in the mass, in the sacraments, the real presence of Christ. The one Catholic doctrine that moved me most powerfully to become a Catholic, against my will, I read the church fathers in order to convince myself that they were Protestant, you know, that's a, an honest mistake, and God uses honest mistakes, and you know the rest of the story, Uh When I read uh, all the Christian writers before the Reformation, I found that not a one of them denied the real presence of Christ in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Not a one of them. Even the enemies of Christianity said, well, of course, that's what the church teaches, and that's ridiculous, that's cannibalism, that's horrible, that's blasphemous. Nobody said it's only a symbol. The first one who ever said that was Berenger of Tours in the 10th century. He was immediately labeled a heretic, he repented, he was reconciled to the church, he didn't found a movement. Uh, Later you get movements, especially the Waldensians and Albigensians in the 13th century. Oh, by the way, what's the difference between a Dominican and a Jesuit? Dominicans were founded by St. Dominic in the 12th century to combat the heresy of Albigensianism. Jesuits were founded by Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century to combat the heresy of Protestantism. Now tell me, please, how many Albigensians have you met lately? (laughs) Jesuit joke. Jesuits have a great sense of humor. I love them. (laughs) Okay, here's this idea that you can meet God incarnate personally, body and blood, soul and divinity in the Eucharist that looks like bread and wine. It's not bread and wine. That's Christ's body. That's Christ's blood after consecration, after transubstantiation. No, that's not true. That's the stupidest and wickedest idolatry in history. These stupid Catholics are bowing down to bread and worshiping wine, thinking it's Almighty God. Was the Holy Spirit asleep for 1,500 years? How could he have let all Christians in the world be subject to that ridiculous heresy? Oh, yeah, it's another either or. Just like God, just like Christ, just like the church. Well, if he's really present there, then that's like... The closest you can get to the marriage bed in dating. Now, I'm not going to ask the question about sexual morality here. I'm just using the same same sexual image that the saints use for uh, the spiritual marriage. Uh, if Jesus Christ is fully present in the Eucharist, then when you receive the Eucharist, that's the closest you can possibly get to him. That's the most perfect union with Christ that you can possibly get. That's the closest you can get to heaven on earth. And Protestants say, well, no, it's only a, a holy symbol. Well, here's Jesus knocking at your door. And if you say, well, I don't believe that's you. I just believe that's the holy symbol. You're missing out on something astonishing. By the way, I think this is the main reason Catholics come home. Catholics who have been baptized and then left the church are the 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 second largest religious group in America next to Catholics who are still in the church. Uh, And we got to get them home. America is our primary mission field. And I think the Eucharist is the primary thing that's going to draw them home. It's a magnet. It's a it's a light in the window. It's the fire in the fireplace. The church is a fireplace and Christ is the fire. And I've heard of countless Catholics, who have come home for that reason. They may have difficulties with the church's theology, they may have difficulty with the church's morality, they may have difficulty with the church's clergy, but he's there, that's my home, that's the fire. How can I be anywhere else? I also know a number of Protestants who became Catholic because a Catholic suggested, well, look, here, you... You don't believe the church is what it claims to be, and you don't believe the Eucharist is really Christ, but you're not sure, right? All right, so I challenge you. Uh, Go into a Catholic church sometime, alone, uh, when nobody's watching you, and you're not worried about what people think, and uh, go to the first pew and see if that little red light is there, and Catholics believe that means that Christ is really present there, And you don't know whether that's true or not. You think it's not, but you're not sure. All right, so pray. You're a Christian, but you're not a Catholic. Oh, pray. Okay, pray to Christ. Say, you're my Lord. Whatever you say is true. Wherever you lead, I want to follow. And I don't think that's you, but maybe I'm wrong because I'm not God. At least I know that much. So if that's you, draw me. And if that's not you... Let me get the hell out of here. It's got to be one or the other. Your will be done. And if you pray that, you'll become a Catholic. Jesus promises it. Seek and you shall find. All who seek, find. The only ones who don't find are the ones who don't seek. Well, that's my answer to why everybody should be a Catholic. And now we've got at least 15 minutes left for questions. Good. Uh, I now invite your questions and responses. I think we have microphones that can be passed around. I was told that. Uh, is that the man with the mic? Testing. Good. Questions about anything, anything I've said or anything I haven't said. One, one question. Yes. How do you respond to the Lutheran theology on the Eucharist, that it, the bread is not changed, but if you have the bread, mm-hmm. he'll come along with it? Mm-hmm. Well, as an abstract idea, it is probable. And as an abstract idea, the Catholic notion of transubstantiation is also probable and reasonable. How do you decide between two ideas that are equally reasonable? Well, if both ideas claim to be divine revelation, you test it by its source. What does God say about it? You didn't invent the Eucharist. God did. Now, Luther invented that idea 1,500 years after Jesus Christ invented the opposite idea and authorized the church to teach the opposite idea, which did teach and practice the opposite idea for 1,500 years. So which is more reasonable? In other words, the historical argument. Catholics don't believe each of the strange things they believe because they're great theologians and they figure it out for themselves. They believe it because they're little kids. They're like the Southern Baptist formula. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. In other words, baby doesn't examine the spinach uh, and make chemical analyses of it uh, before baby eats the spinach because mommy says it's good even though it tastes funny. Maybe trust mommy to put the right food on his plate. Dr. Kreeft, yeah. um, thank you so much for your presentation this uh, morning. I had a question. If you could just address your earlier comment about uh, negotiating without compromise mm-hmm. and how that is compatible with your later comments about um the irreconcilable differences, the either-or option about the claims of the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. and how that uh, makes it either a lunatic or a liar rather than true. Well, understanding your opponent and listening to your opponent is not compromise. Here are two parties that teach apparently contradictory things. We're not talking about political compromise there. That's necessary. Nobody can get utopia and perfection and everything in politics. So you've got to make genuine compromises there. But not in theology, not in doctrine. We want the truth, unvarnished. All right. So you've got a contra- an apparent contradiction here. Is it a real contradiction? How can you find out? Listen. Listen to your opponent. And have your opponent listen to you. And then... Uh, be sure that your motive is right. Your motive is honesty. Your motive is truth. And if you're both Christians, that's got to be Christian truth. Here, you're playing an instrument in God's symphony orchestra. And somebody else is playing an instrument in the same orchestra. And the two instruments seem to be out of tune. They're either playing different pieces or they're on a different page. Uh, How do you get them to be in harmony? Well, the the Christian answer is only one possible answer. Jesus Christ is conducting that orchestra. And if you only look at your own sheet of music in front of you, nothing's going to happen. But if you look at his hand and his baton and you follow that baton, and the other party does too, then you will agree because his will is unity. We know that. Read John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus died for that unity. That unity not only between man and God, but also between man and man. So if that's your deepest desire, you'll find it. Jesus gives an answer, a challengingly simple answer to the question, how do you understand and interpret his teaching? John 7 verse 17 He says to the Jews who who question two things. One, what his teaching means. It's very difficult. And two, whether it's authoritative, whether it comes from God, whom he calls his father. And his answer is, if your will were to do the will of my father, you would understand my teaching that it is from him. And that's the secret of ecumenical reconciliation. If the saintly Protestant and the saintly Catholic want with their whole will, what God wills, then they will see what God sees. The heart leads the mind. The, the heart pumps blood into the brain. That's not true in science. You don't have to love the guinea pig that you're uh, dissecting in order to understand it. But you do have to love the God that you want to understand. And if you do, you will understand him. That's, that's infallible. That's divinely authorized and guaranteed. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's not gonna be a lot of misunderstandings and difficulties along the way, and that it might not take a long time. God's a lover, not a train. He doesn't go by a timetable, but it'll happen. Uh, yeah, my question, um, your, your comment about uh, great literature, including three characters, uh, brought to mind uh, a statement attributed to Mario Puzo that I wondered you know, if you knew if, it was, uh, if he made the statement and if he recognized the connection to the three virtues, or I'm sorry, the three vows. But he said that all great stories were about money, sex, and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd, I'd be curious on, on your thoughts. Yeah, money, sex, and power are the three sources of the three great temptations, pride and greed and lust and they're opposed by the uh, the three vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, so there's a war going on between Christ and Antichrist, and Christ came to make peace uh, with God and with ourselves and with each other. Thomas Merton wonderfully summarized that in one sentence. We are not at peace with each other because we are not at peace with ourselves, and we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. But in order to attain that peace, you have to be at war with the devil's war, because the devil wants you to make peace with with money, sex, and power, pride, greed, and lust, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So here are the three weapons that God has provided against that. So we have to make a war against war blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are the people who find peace easy and just swim in it. Blessed are the peacemakers. And in order to make peace, you have to war against the sources of war. And the church has always taught those three things. And that also fits the threefold pattern. And it's not just clergy who practice poverty, chastity, and obedience. They make special vows, but they are like the iceberg above the water, and the laity is that same iceberg under the water. Um, My question has to do with Paul. The uh, Protestants um, a lot of times will quote um, the teachings of Paul from the Scriptures, and I was just wondering when Paul would travel around, um, trying to teach everyone about Jesus. and his, um, his teachings, would he give the Eucharist as part of his teachings? Well, he said a lot about the Eucharist, especially in Corinthians. And word and sacrament, uh, teaching and, and the Eucharist are the two indispensable parts of, of evangelism. Uh, and Paul's the great missionary who more than anyone else started it, so the answer is a, a resounding yes. Although what Paul says, both about theology and about the sacraments, uh, is not totally adequate and totally clear, and it needs interpretation, and James himself refers to Paul's letters, which were apparently already in circulation, when he says, uh, uh, Paul is difficult to understand. That's why we need a, a living teacher to teach that sacred book. The textbook is finished. It's it's unchanged. The Bible is not going to be added to, but you need a living teacher to interpret it. So the church continues to unpack uh, the profound truths that are already packaged uh, completely in the Bible, but you always get more and more. That's true even of of secular classics, How much has been written about, oh, let's say Hamlet, probably the greatest play ever written, thousands and thousands of books. Is there nothing new to say? Oh, sure, there's always something new to say because we're talking about the human spirit, which is in the image of God and therefore has a kind of infinity to it. So you need proper interpretation. That's why you need a living church because the alternative to that is 30,000 different denominations. Would you explain the dubia? the lack of a response, and whether we are in schism? No, I'm not a professional theologian, so I'm not sure about those categories, sorry. I'll tell you I what I know, i simp- what I don't know. I have a simple question. Can non-Catholics get to heaven? Yes, the Catholic Church says so, very clearly in, in Vatican II. Of course, uh, you don't get to heaven by passing a theology exam at the Golden Gates. If you did, we'd all flunk. <laughs> you get to heaven by, by faith, hope, and charity. And Protestants can have that, yes. And there's a lot of Protestants that are a lot holier than we are. And we can learn from them. Now so I've been challenged with this question. Maybe you can answer it. Um... Why would I want to pray to the saints, and in particular, pray to Mary, when I can pray to Jesus directly? Well, that's like saying, why should I ask my mother uh, to uh, persuade my father to give me this thing that I want instead of going to my father directly? Or why should I ask my Christian friend, please pray for me, when I can ask God directly? You know, heavenly realities and earthly realities aren't two totally different things. One is the image of the other. So, because God designed this, and God designed us to be in his image. So if we ask our earthly friends to pray for us, and no Protestant denies that, why shouldn't we ask our heavenly friends to pray for us? The only possible reason is because your heavenly friends can't see you anymore. But Scripture itself says that's not true. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, how many people are watching this thing that's going on right now? Many more than a thousand. Your your grandparents, your beloved and departed family members, uh, do they not care about you anymore in heaven? I mean, when you get to heaven, uh, let's say you die before your wife dies and you love your wife dearly. Are you going to say to God, please don't show me how well my wife is doing, and please don't let me pray for her? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm in heaven now. I'm not on earth anymore. Of course not. If you're a lover, you're going to say, God, how can I help her here? And God's going to say, You can do more for her now in heaven than you ever could on earth. I read read an autobiography of a a Presbyterian pastor. he was an adult, he's still a Presbyterian, he didn't become a Catholic, but uh, there's a chapter in it where his father, who was also a Presbyterian minister, died, and he loved his father very much, and he was about 12 years old when it happened, and he said, that night, as usual, I prayed for my father, kneeling to say my prayers at my bedside, and my mother, who heard my prayers, said to me, oh, son, we must not do that. We are not Roman Catholics. <laughs> and he said, at that moment, an iron gate clanged shut between myself and my father. His death didn't do it. My mother's words did it. So to this day, I can't believe that she was right. There's a deep instinct that we have to connect with other people. We're not We're not independent. We're not autonomous. We're not angels. We're in families. And in a non-biological way, family continues in heaven. The, the gap between earth and heaven is not an iron gate. So of course there's the communion of saints. And of course we can pray for each other even though we don't see each other. We can pray for them and they can pray for us. Thank Doctor. you for coming today and speaking. I just wanted to say I recently enjoyed your uh, recent Prager U videos. Um, also, I've read you for, uh, through college until today... And one of the greatest things, uh, or favorite books, is uh, Christianity for Modern Pagans, when you wrote about Blaise Pascal's Wager. Uh, and and uh, that was very meaningful to me and changed kind of the course of my life. And I just wanted to ask you today, uh, what are some of your favorite books that you've read and that you would recommend to others? Well, my best books are always the ones about great authors, uh, because I'm a, I'm a bug. And I, I have pretty good legs, so I can hop on to the head of uh, great thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas and Pascal and and see uh, maybe even sometimes a little farther than they see. That's, that's a plagiarism from one of the cliches that medieval philosophers love to repeat. We are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. If we see more than the ancients, it's only because we first have the sense and humility to jump on their shoulders. So I'd say St. Augustine uh, and St. Thomas Aquinas and Pascal. uh, And in the 20th century, I think C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton are the two greatest Christian apologists. So those were probably my five favorites. Dr. Crave, how do you respond to somebody who says religion is not necessary, but spirituality is all that one needs? Well, that's what the devil says. The devil is very spiritual. He hates matter. (laughs) And religion means relationship, a relationship with God. And if you know who God is, that relationship starts with humility. But spirituality lacks humility. Oh, I am very spiritual. That's what the Pharisees said, too. I think that's ridiculous and dangerous. I'm not spiritual. I'm religious. Dr. Crave, there are many non-Catholic Protestants who deeply love the Lord mm-hmm. and pursue truth. Mm-hmm. And yet it is impaired in their minds because mm-hmm. of a strong cultural relationship to a denomination where they, they, they yep. worship. Yep. They're deeply involved in their churches. They have a ministry that's very dynamic. Yep. So those people who pursue truth but are held back because the cultural ties that that hold them back, Mm -hmm. what would be the approach you would use? Try to see God's hand. Try to see the baton and follow it. C.S. Lewis is the prime example of that. Uh, here is a brilliant, honest, and very, very good Christian who never saw his way through to the Catholic Church, even though he had deeply Catholic sensibilities. He believed in purgatory. He had a deep devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary to the saints. He went to confession each week to a priest, and yet he never became a Catholic. Tolkien, his best Catholic friend, kept badgering him about it, and once he responded, If you prize my friendship, you will stop badgering me about this. You couldn't possibly understand you were not born in Belfast. (laughs) So Lewis was aware of his prejudices. I think in the case of Lewis, God performed a miracle, stopping Lewis from becoming a Catholic, which would have been the most natural thing in the world, so that the Protestants would read him. I know literally dozens of Protestants who became a Catholic, first of all because of C.S. Lewis. He greased the slide. Uh, So God's plans are are strange. For for some reason or other, God does not do the simple, obvious thing. Here is this wonderful, truly holy and honest and truth-seeking Protestant, and here is the Catholic Church. Uh, Why doesn't God just push him? I don't know why are there mosquitoes? (laughs) We just have to trust that God knows better than we do because we're not God. My favorite sermon, by the way, of all time is the shortest one. This is probably because I have ADD and get bored very easily. Shortest sermon I ever heard, a mystical vision of St. Catherine, late medieval mystic. God said, I'm going to summarize all of divine revelation in four words. This is all you need to know. This is the Bible in four words. Two sentences. One, I'm God. Two, you're not. <laughs> we keep forgetting that second thing. Dr. Dr. Kreeft, uh, I'm teaching confirmation, and to help kids kind of tie it all together, I have uh, God's phone number. You call uh, one, one God, three persons, five precepts of the church, uh, seven sacraments. Seven uh, gifts of the spirit, seven virtues, 10 for 10 commandments, 12 for fruits of the spirit. The one part of the phone number uh, that gets messed up is five, the precepts of the church, uh, regular mass attendance. You teach the kids a confirmation, great, they're confirmed, boom. uh, Only one out of four come back in regular mass attendance. So can you speak to that in a Protestant culture? The obligation to attend seems like a work, okay? And I can go to heaven without that work. So uh, that particular uh, precept, if you want to enlarge on that. Thank you. Well, you can get educated without reading books, and you can be married without ever making love, but that's silly. I mean, if if they understand what the Mass is, uh, it's not an obligation so much as a privilege. And the fact that God makes it an obligation is itself a privilege. How how compassionate for God to, to look down on us fools who are bored with the marriage bed and prefer something else, uh, let's say an indefinite courtship, uh, and say, no, that's what it's all about, go there. Uh, he, he makes charity a duty. Most people think love is a feeling, of course, that's ridiculous. You can't command a feeling, but you can command love because love is an act of the will. So God commands us to love, thereby making it a duty, thereby making it non-negotiable. Good, that's compassion. He does the same thing with mass attendance. So I would say just if if you get them to understand and fall in love with Christ and believe his real presence in the Eucharist, uh, how can they not go to mass? And if you can get them to see that the church's rule is not simply one of control or order, but one of love and compassion. We're so stupid we have to be reminded by commands to do the, the, the greatest thing we can do in this life, the, the, the greatest privilege we have in this life, to get that close to Almighty God. If they see that, uh, how can they not?